For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word and we rejoice in all that you have given to us through the hands of your apostles and prophets. We praise you for revealing yourself plainly, making the mystery that was hidden for ages now fully known to us by your spirit. And we ask God that you now sustain us in the strength of that same spirit that we would know your great love and what it means to live in that love in our world. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. It was a television blockbuster running for seven seasons from 1966 to 1973. I was not alive, but I have seen the reruns. Starring Peter Graves, the show was made popular by the repeated weekly intro. A tape was played giving instructions which said this, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to be filled in. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck. If you don't know what a tape is, then just ask your grandparents, okay? <laughs> These things are now obsolete. And the mission each week in the show, Mission Impossible, it required a bold and audacious plan that was pretty much ridiculous. But somehow the Mission Impossible team pulled it off. They made their way through it. They were always successful. You were given suspense, though, at the beginning because it seemed so difficult. How was it possibly going to happen? You didn't quite know. And honestly, when we read the book of Ephesians, we encounter a bold and audacious plan. And when we listen to it rightly, we can often feel that the whole thing is about to self-destruct. <laughs> that this whole thing is just going to blow apart because this is such a bold and audacious plan that God constructs through Jesus that includes the church that there's no way that it can succeed. It doesn't seem possible Remember that the foundational promise in Ephesians 1 is that God is now uniting all things in heaven and on earth. He's bringing these two spheres back together, reconciling them through Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing in his world. And then in chapter 2, we receive the detail of how God is now reconciling us to himself. That through the blood of Jesus, we are brought back into relationship with him. We are forgiven and we are told in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is that God has recreated us after his image. 
and now is preparing us for good works ahead of us. And then in the second half of chapter 2, we learn that not only have we been reconciled to God, but now we are reconciled to one another. That there is peace inside the body of Christ because we share this mutual standing in front of God. So despite class or despite race or despite any other division that we can construct as human beings, God has obliterated these things and he doesn't discriminate. He has brought us together in this one new society, the church. And last week, in verse 10 of chapter 3, we saw the audacious and bold plan of God. Paul writes, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that God's great plan that has been worked out in Jesus is now being made known to the world through the church. Through the very ordinary mechanism of sinful and broken people who were doing their best to live in harmony with one another. This is God's great plan. And some would say that's certainly going to self-destruct. That can't make it. And so what do we need, though, in order to be a part of this mission of God in the world to be his manifold wisdom that makes known to the rulers and the, and the principalities and powers God's great mysterious plan of the gospel? In Ephesians 3, in verses 14 through 21, we find Paul praying for the church asking for God to give the church just what it needs in order to be his manifold wisdom in the world. And there are two things that Paul prays for in Ephesians 3. First, he prays that we would be empowered by the Spirit to be established in love. This is the first thing that we need if we are to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, that the Spirit must empower us to be established in love. If we pick up in verse 16, Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is the first infinitive clause in the sentence. These sentences are very dense and they're all one, okay? And so it's very difficult. And then there's a second clause, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And some would understand these to be two separate things, but rather they're complementary phrases. They are saying the same thing from a different direction. And so Paul first says that God would strengthen you with the Spirit in your inner being, and then he says, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And that's referring to the same phenomena of God dwelling in us and renewing us. And so this is his prayer, that the Spirit of God would come into the center of who we are, the center of our being. And then you find the so that at the end of verse 17, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. That's his request. That's what he asked God for. That you be strengthened by the Spirit in order to be established in love. He uses first an agricultural metaphor, that you be rooted, that it go down deep, and that you be grounded. That's an architectural metaphor, that you be built on the right foundation. And what Paul is pointing to is the ethic that now 
is demonstrated inside of God's new society. This freshly created people that God has won over from darkness and sin, that he's bought through the blood of Jesus, that he is now calling us into this new way of life. And it is the way of love. That this is uh, the path that God now calls us to. And so the largest question for us is, what does that love look like? What does it look like to embody this love command in the world? Ephesians 5, chapters one and, uh, verses 1 and 2, is the most explicit location for this in the book that Paul gives. If you turn there, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the first thing we see about this love that we are to be imitators of is that it is sacrificial, that Jesus gave himself up for us. We find other references to love in the book of Ephesians. Back in chapter 1, in verse 4, at the end of 4, going into 5, it says, In love, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And so we learn something else here of the love of God, that it is an initiating love. That before the foundations of the world, God initiated with us and made plans for us. He was intentional in his love. And then in chapter 2, we also find something else about God's love. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. This is while we were still captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That God in mercy, because of his great love, sent his son into the world. And so we learn something else of the love of God here, that it's a merciful and compassionate love. And this is what we know from the book of Ephesians. That it is this initiating, sacrificial, merciful kind of love that Paul prays that we would be strengthened to embody. That that is our life in the world. And that if the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the world through the church, the church must dwell in this kind of love. This is what must happen. John Calvin captures our struggle with this command, though. He says it well. It remains always certain that love is the rule of life. And this ought to be the more carefully noticed, because all choose rather almost anything else than this one commandment of God. Calvin says we would prefer anything else beyond this, <laughs> because it is all-encompassing. Paul says in Romans 13, that to keep all the law is summed up in the one word, love. That when we love in the way that God commands us, when we disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage someone else, we will always keep the commandments of God. But why is it such a struggle? Why is it so hard for us? And I believe what we see in the passage when Paul is praying that our inner being, our hearts be strengthened by the presence of Christ, by the Spirit of God, he indicates that the problem is that our hearts are too narrow. In other words, it's not that we love too much. 
In fact, the problem is, is that we love too little and we love wrongly. That our loves are not broad enough and wide enough. That we love for our own sake. We love with regard to ourselves. We love with expectation of return. We want to get something out of it. That our loves are misshapen. And it's especially very difficult for us to love sacrificially when we don't get something personally out of it. Several years ago, I was counseling with a a young woman who had become very frustrated and embittered towards the church. It was distressing because she was such a servant. She had been involved in almost every team that was a part of the young church plant, and she had given herself sacrificially in so many ways. But then suddenly she began to withdraw, and there was talk about a book called Boundaries and how she needed to keep those. That can all be a positive thing, by the way. But it was clear that something else was going on, that there was some bitterness and anger. So we sat down to talk about it, and it all became clear. And she expressed that she was so disappointed because the people that she was serving, they were not responding. And so when asked about how they were not responding, it became clear that she was expecting a certain type of relationship on the other side of her service. The people had been grateful and were glad, and they actually had no clue that her service came loaded with a certain expectation for an intimacy and a personal relationship she had no, they had no clue she wanted. And so in the absence of that, when she didn't receive it, she was just completely imploding, pulling away. It was a wonderful moment to talk about the nature of Christian love and how it works. Because, friends, that's not it. That the love God calls us to embody, the command that we are to keep, isn't promised to return. Our Lord Jesus is the preeminent example of that. A sacrificial offering. He was despised for it. And that we can't love when it is for our own sake, when it is selfishly interested. But this is the nature of our hearts, that our hearts are narrow. And what needs to happen is they have to be strengthened and broadened by the presence of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That this is when we learn to love and when we're rooted and established. And that we're free then from needing to receive something as we give ourselves to the world. And this is the gift that the gospel gives to us, is that we can freely give ourselves without expectation of return. We can give ourselves sacrificially, that we can initiate to others even though they may reject us, that we can be compassionate and merciful to others in their need even though they may despise us for it. Because we don't need the response. We know what it is to be loved, and so now we can love. I was listening to music several years ago. It was a new pop band that had become suddenly popular, and the the songs had driving rhythms of guitar and and bass, and, and it was very easy to start singing them. It was a band called Mumford & Sons. They're not popular. I'm not trying to be cool when I say this. They're not popular now. <laughs> it's become old. But I found myself actually learning the words. And with most pop songs, 
I had learned the words, and guess what? I didn't know them. (laughs) I didn't know exactly what I was singing along to in my monotone way as I listened to the album. And suddenly one day, while listening to a song called Sigh No More, it became clear what I was singing. I stopped and thought about it. It says, love will not betray you, dismay you, or enslave you. It will set you free to be more like the man you were meant to be. I never thought of it. I knew the band had some Christian roots. I didn't know quite where they stood today in their, in their profession of faith, but I knew that their father had been a pastor, and then it suddenly clicked. Oh, wow. This song was a Trojan horse of the gospel. Here it is. Love, it will not betray you, dismay you, or enslave you. It will set you free. And friends, that's what Paul wants us to understand. That's what he is praying, that we be rooted and grounded in love, that our hearts be widened, that they be strengthened by the presence of Christ, by the presence of the Spirit, in order that we give ourselves to the world in love. So how do we get there? The command to love is all over the New Testament, but we struggle with it, and it can be crushing especially when we consider the narrow confines of our hearts and how difficult we find it. And this leads us to Paul's second petition. You find this in verse 18. But Paul's second petition is that we be empowered by the Spirit to comprehend the love of Christ. Now he is not praying that we be rooted and grounded in love ourselves, but that we would be rooted and grounded in comprehending the love God has for us in Jesus. And that Paul understood that the essential link for the church to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, if they were to embody the love of God in the world, that that would first begin not in a law or in a rule, that that would begin in understanding the love that God has shown to the church in the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so once again in verse 18, we have parallel statements. First, he prays, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And so this is the first petition, that we would understand with all of the church together the immeasurable, the infinite, This was his first petition. And then he builds it out in the second petition. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you didn't get it in the first metaphor of height and length and breadth and width, you get it in the second one. To know what is unknowable. To know what surpasses knowledge. That Paul wanted us to marinate in those truths over and over again and over again. When we were in Cuba, we were with Christians from various churches, several in Dallas, Texas. We had a wonderful team, and one of, the, uh, one of our mission partners there was riding in the front seat of the van with me, and uh, after driving in Cuba for a few hours, um, you do want to make sure your eternal security is sound and squared away. He was a particularly nervous rider, <laughs> and um, And he asked me at one point when we were driving, he said, Chuck, so uh, when did you have an encounter with the love of God in Jesus? And I said, well, you know, I grew up in the church, 
and I don't remember a time apart from the love of Christ. And um, that answer was not particularly satisfying to him. He said, but, but when did you encounter the love of Jesus? And I said, I don't know when I was converted. I simply know that I have been converted. So you don't have a specific moment when you encountered the love of Jesus. I said, I don't know. I said, I'm Presbyterian down to my toe jam on this one, okay? Um, I, I don't know. But I know that I have been loved by God. If I need to give you a time and date, perhaps last week. Because, you know, I was feeling the incredible burden of my sins and my failures, and they weighed on me. And I was in this room actually praying, and I asked for God to forgive me, and I was surrounded and flooded by the overwhelming love of God for me in Jesus. I said, you know what? And it happened a few weeks before that. And it happened when I was 18. It happened when I was 22. It happened when I was 28. It happened when I was 12. I say, it's happened to me so many times. And as far as I can tell, that's what Paul prays for us that we would constantly be coming into contact with the surpassing knowledge of the love of God for us in Jesus. That that is to be our life. That we are to be overwhelmed by it. That we're not contented with this one-time encounter with it where we know our sins were forgiven as important as conversion is. Paul is praying here for a continued sense of conversion in the heart of the Christian. That we be wrapped up and bound up in this knowledge of God's love that surpasses knowledge. That you would know the unknowable. That it would become richer and fuller. And that was what I told my friend. Is that God's love becomes richer and fuller and more free with every passing year. And that's what's wonderful about it to me. That my testimony is more about one of God's faithfulness and his covenant promises to my family and bringing me alive to those as a young child and then maturing those throughout many years. It's not everyone's story, but it's my story and my testimony. But friends, the reality behind what I'm saying is true for all of us. That we would grow in understanding the height and depth, the width and the breadth of the love of God in Jesus. And that means that we have to come to frank terms with our sins and failures. Throughout the history of the Reformed Church, it's very interesting to note the way that Protestants have worshipped because there was a large degree of consistency until about 150 years ago. But the service began in a traditional plotting fashion in which the congregation was called to confess their sins. And then on the other side of confession, there is praise offered to God. Sometimes it was hymns, sometimes it was psalms, but whatever, there was then gratitude expressed. That after coming before God in contrition and humility, acknowledging what was wrong with us, confessing our sins, we were assured of the grace of God, and then we returned thanks to him in praise. It's this very simple cycle that is crucial to your spiritual maturity. There's no maturity without that dynamic at work in you. Constantly being humbled and then overwhelmed by the love of God for you in Jesus and what he's done to pull you out of the pit of sin. That's the dynamic that live, that keeps you spiritually vitalized. 
And this is what Paul is praying for you. This doesn't produce anxious and fearful people, but rather it produces joyful and glad people. People filled with gratitude. And then the other thing, the byproduct, it produces loving people. Because when we experience what it is to be loved sacrificially in this way, we learn to love selflessly. And this is what Paul knew. This is why he holds this until the second part of the prayer. After he asks that you be rooted and grounded in love, he prays that you would know the love that surpasses knowledge. Because as you go into that mystery and as you know the unknowable, Paul knew that you would get caught up and get lost and then giving yourself to other people. That there is no law necessary. There's no rule or regulation required at this point. That being loved by God, we become loving. As we say this, many people will simply respond and say, but I don't know if I can do it. Because when we think about the command to love and to give ourselves sacrificially, to initiate, to be filled with mercy and compassion, we start to think of the people around us. Because we can't just keep this abstract. How can we do it? And this is where at the front of Paul's prayer and the end, he has some very helpful advice for us. In verse 16, he's praying that the Father of heaven, who names every family in heaven on earth, that according to the riches of his glory, that from the riches of God's glory, that he will strengthen. And then in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. When we hear the command to love and to give ourselves to others sacrificially, we can be paralyzed. But friends, our God is infinite in his resources. Paul is praying that from the riches of God's glory and from the abundance of his power that can't fail, that he will strengthen us, that he will make us competent to do these things. And that we have to begin, in order to, to love someone well, we have to begin with acknowledging that we can't. Augustine would say it this way in the Confessions. He says, God, command what you will, but then God, give what you command. And that is the dynamic that must live in us. That God commands us to love, but God must give us every bit of resource from the riches of his glory, and from the one who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. And so if you feel yourself incompetent to love, you are qualified for the job. But now you must turn and ask God to help. Try him. See if his resources are good enough. See if they're complete to teach you and to train you to love, to show you the way. See if his resources are good enough to strengthen you to comprehend his great love for you. Try him out. See if he wants to fulfill that, command, fulfill that request. Because, friends, I can assure you he does. That when we call to him, he will answer. He has commanded us to love. He will give us everything needed to walk in that command.
And it is through this that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world. That is how the world knows of the great gospel of God, is through the church walking in love and through the church knowing the love of God for her. Friends, dwell in that mystery. And may the love of God shine. May it be like, may we be like a city set upon the hill because we know this great love and this great love is embodied amongst us. That's Paul's prayer. It's ours as well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your high calling upon us to be your manifold wisdom in the world, to display to the world the greatness of your love, your reconciling love. Will you help us? Our hearts are narrow. We receive the command and we feel our weakness. But you can broaden and widen the heart, and we ask you to do so. Teach us to love, but teach us to love by knowing how we are loved by you. Sacrificially, you have initiated with us. You have done everything on our behalf to forgive our sins. Remind us of that day in and day out. May that frame our lives. And lost in that mystery, may we then give ourselves to others.